Billy, you are like a booking agent now. You're coming through. That's right. That's right. I, I like this. We launched the feature, uh, My Pearl Gym Experience, and I'm really excited to 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 kind of have our first uh, star guest. And I hope I'm not putting on the spot, it, but uh, I'm really looking forward to this episode. So so let's just get into it. This podcast will stir your passion. It's Jamily Matters, Pearl Jam Explored. Welcome to the show. Very excited, as I said, uh, Billy came through with a, just a, a guest that I'm really excited to talk to, talk about, and, and get some insights on our favorite band. I'm not sure if it's his favorite band, but I know it's a band that's very near and dear to his heart. Billy, it's your guest, so I want you to bring him in, give him his title, <laughs> do the whole thing. <laughs> well, thanks, Roach. I mean, I couldn't be more excited. Uh, I think this has been so much fun up until this point of doing this podcast, both you and I. And I really love, though, what we've been doing as of recent, which is having really great guests on onto this awesome podcast. And I think for um, all of our listeners that have heard a couple of our past episodes, we've really been diving into some key influential uh, radio programmers out there that love Pearl Jam as much as we do. But today, I'm, I'm very honored to have... Um, one of our labels within the orchard. Um, so I, I've mentioned on this podcast before, you know, I, I work on the record label side. Um, I work for a really, really great company called the orchard, which is a global distribution company. And I'm, I'm honored. We get to work with so many different types of awesome labels fall under our fold in the orchard. So this one, this one is one that we just, I, I know will resonate with, with the audience um, of our podcast. So today we are excited uh, to introduce Ben Blackwell from Third Man Records. Uh, there are three men of Third Man, Ben being one of the third. And, uh, you know, I, 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 Ben has always been on my radar because I'm a massive fan of his label. I also, you know, somewhat work for his company because we distribute his label. Uh, so very familiar with his roster. But one thing I've been told um, over the past several years from several of my industry friends, it was like, hey, do you know Ben Blackwell? Because, you know, he's a big Pearl Jam fan, uh, just like you. So uh, I'm excited that we're, we're doing this today and that we can actually have him on um, so he could tell us a little bit more about his love of the band. But we can hear from him, a person that runs a label, and hear more about uh him and his experiences with Pearl Jam. So I'm excited to introduce Ben Blackwell from Third Man Records. Hi, Ben. That, that was the longest <laughs> intro ever. Sorry. You guys get paid by the word? What's going on here? Ben, the crowd is... The, ben Blackwell. Ben, the crowd is milling around, waiting for the headliner to come on, and, and it's just <laughs> going on, and the crowd is just like, what is this? We want to make sure no one parked in the lot next to the Subway sandwich shop. They will tow. Pearl Jam will be on in five minutes. <laughs> okay, for the record, this is why Roach does what he does, who is a radio guy, and I'm a records gal. So I, there I you can go. tell who the professional is here. You didn't need me. You didn't need me. Break it down. Well, so Ben, welcome. Uh, we assume you're in you're in Nashville. I correct. That's the that's one of the home bases of Third Man Records. That is the the general headquarters of Third Man is here in Nashville. Yes. So in Billy's introduction, which a lot of people may have forgotten by this point because it started a couple of years ago, she mentioned 
that you are a part of Third Man Records. So specifically, what do you do with Third Man? Uh, I am a co-founder slash co-owner of Third Man Records. Uh, that's, that is the, the title I carry. Uh, in terms of what I do, we don't have super clear delineated job descriptions here. I would say, uh, general manager oversight along with, uh, my, my other co-founder here, Ben Swank. Um, we have our particular areas of focus. Uh, Ben Swank works a lot with, with new bands when we have new artists, you know, radio campaigns and touring and social media, all that kind of stuff. I am more so, uh, largely in the realm of reissues and archival releases, anything involving the white stripes. If it's archival or towards their history, I'm very deeply ingrained in that. So that, uh, that largely falls onto my plate. Um, but kind of little bits of everything. You uh, let's let's just put it out there now. You, you mentioned the second of the thir- three men. You're the first. Who is the third man in Third Man right. Records? The the founder and and main uh, the big cheese here is is Jack White of the White Stripes of the Raconteurs, of the Dead Weather, of Solo Renown, uh, former upholsterer. <laughs> um, no, I think he's always. I think you're always an upholsterer. Once an upholsterer, always upholsterer. He's still practicing. So, um, yeah. So he's uh, he's the head honcho here. So really, in the day to day, other Ben works probably more closely with Billy than you do. Yes, absolutely, one hundred percent. Because he he, as he said before we started recording, he much prefers dealing with dead artists. They're much easier yeah. to work with. <laughs> well, it's like one of those things, like when we started, it was literally the three of us and to a large extent, literally the two of me and Ben. And so when you start, we were packing every mail order. We were running the storefront. We were making the deals. I was dealing with the pressing plant. You do everything for this label to start. And as things get bigger and things grow, you have to figure out and decide what your attention is best directed towards or what your expertise is best applied to. And, you know, there's some things that I held on to for no other reason than I wanted to be the one to fuck it up. <laughs> like if I was going to screw up the ingestion of a digital file to iTunes, that's okay. But if I handed it off to an intern who went to school for that stuff and they screwed up an ISRC code, I was going to get pissed. And then I realized like how much stress that causes me and how much I need to be on timelines and deadlines that I'm not good at keeping. I was like, you know what? Let someone else make some mistakes. It's okay. And you know what? People largely don't make that many mistakes. Certainly not that many catastrophic ones. Um, but distribution is one where like, you know, a couple years back, I was far more, far more hands-on and involved with. And as we've grown bigger, we actually have a, a, our own pressing plant that we built in Detroit. Um, that I largely oversee and I'm kind of the, um, you know, guide a lot of the ideas and principles there. Um, distribution was one where, you know what, we've got a lot of other people that I really, that are really, really great, that I really, really trust working with the orchard as well helps. That was like, you know what, I'm going to back off a little bit on distribution. I don't need to be on all the calls. I don't need to be on, uh, know when product needs to hit the warehouse, things like that. Um, I'm still there in the mix, but on a, on a more uh, outside level. And I'm, I'm totally, it, it's work-life balance is great now. So I'm not 
not mad about it. This is a Pearl Jam podcast, not a Jack White podcast, so there won't be a ton of Jack White questions. Uh, I, I will have some as it pertains to Pearl Jam's appearance in 2016 at Third Man Records, which we'll get into in just a couple of minutes. The one Jack White question I would ask you is you kind of broke down what you and Ben do uh, in in the day-to-day. What's, what's, what's Jack up to as far as Third Man is concerned? I mean – always, always doing something, always busy, always creating. Um, I've said this numerous times and part of me wish, wishes that it would become untrue at some point, uh, but it hasn't. And what it is, is third man is basically a staff of 30 trying to keep up with the creative drive of Jack White. Uh, the stuff that he wants to do as quickly as he wants to do it. Uh, things of that nature. So, so a lot of stuff. No, uh, no big reveals here, but um, there's definitely stuff happening now that when people find out about, um, they'll be stoked. They'll be interested. That's about as, as much of a tease as I can give, which is all <laughs> anti-tease, really, to be honest. It's weird. I, I want to talk a little bit about the brick and mortar. and But I want to, because we could do a whole episode just about Third Man Records. This is about Pearl Jam. So as we yeah. get closer to the conversation about Pearl Jam's appearance there, this is a good place to start. How important was it for the three of you to have this live space, this kind of living space within the building that you were putting together in Nashville? It was one of the few things that was an idea about third man physical location right off the bat. So, you know, the original idea of this building, Jack just needed a spot to hold all of his gear all of his musical gear, his touring gear. He was paying to have it in storage units. He said, why am I doing that? So he bought the building, just going to keep his gear here, realized there was office space and said, you know what? I own the vinyl rights to my back catalog, to the White Stripes and First Rack and Tours album at that time. Why don't I just set up the label to just get these things uh, back into print? Uh, and then there was a room off the side that was originally a photo studio uh, that was big enough. It was like, you know what? You can put a stage in here. So I was like, well, we'll have a stage. He's like, I can do tour rehearsals here, which is a big deal. Mm -hmm. And then also we can play shows. We don't have to call the club down the street and say, hey, we want to do a secret show or we want to do a show just for our fan club members. Or we just need to get on stage and try something out. Um, it, it's all coming from DIY. Whatever you can do yourself, let's try to do that here. So it was originally storage, then label, then performance. And then after that came storefront. Was, which was basically like the the day before we did our big announced launch. Jack's like, hey, let's throw a bunch of records in that room right there. That, <laughs> you know, okay, we sold everything for $3, but we didn't tell anyone. We were selling like $100 records for $3 and no one was asking. It was pretty clever. Um, and then, you know, subsequently grew to doing our own mail order, to having a photo studio, to having uh, doing direct to acetate lathe cutting, uh, it, it, on and on and on and on, all these other things that we do here in-house. I want to ask a question to Billy, which then she can volley over to Ben if she feels the need. How how unique is it for an artist to, I mean, we know if you sign with a record label, more than likely you're signing over the masters, the rights to the masters as well. How unique of a deal is it that he had the rights to vinyl distribution of his music? How unique. I mean, it, it's, uh, I don't know if it's not that unique it, at this level of Jack's career and, and the amount of catalog and product well, at, that he at has. This, at this level, though, but going back to that point. 
Let me let me answer the question, Greg, because <laughs> Billy Jean just biffed it hardcore. <laughs> I will give I'll give the true anecdote. So when the White Stripes started getting big, two thousand one, um, they were on a small independent label in Southern California, and it became evident they needed to be on other labels. You know, they needed to 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 take a step up, and so they ended up signing with V two in North America and XL for the rest of the world. And the deal that they signed was, as I am told, fairly. Um, I might exaggerate a little fairly revolutionary. The deal that they signed, which was straight licensing deal. This is 2001. The white stripes have not sold a million records. They've probably not even sold a hundred thousand records at this point, but the deal they signed was a licensing deal. I think it was a 10 year term. uh, And all the rights reverted back to the band. Um, And, I discussed this with the, with Jack, the the White Stripes lawyer, at one point. I said, "How did you know to do that? What was your thought process right. of, you know, because a lot of artists, the, you're basically making a bet on on you're you're taking a bet when you sign with a record label. Correct. Are you betting that you're going to sell a lot of records or that you are not going to sell a lot of records? If you think you're not going to sell a lot of records, you take the advance and you get the largest advance as you can." If you think you're going to sell records, you give the record label as little as they will take. Ten-year license, only, you know, uh, a, a license. They don't even own anything. Which, ben, so, ben, today, artists are much more aware and cognizant of. That's why the, the key thing that you've said so far is this is 2001. In 2001, yeah. and we talked about this with Pearl Jam, where it was like the record label had all of the cards. And the bands and the artists... I don't want to say they were naive, but it was, hey, if I if I want to do this, if I need to get from point A to point B or point C, I need to go through point B. You don't have to do that now, and I feel like artists are much more aware now, so the deals that you're about to describe are probably much more prevalent now because the artists hold more cards because they have more avenues to distribute their music. Absolutely, and, and larger to that point is, you know, I, I this White Stripes lawyer said she told Jack and Meg, she said, listen, we can sign this. We can do this deal that way. But I just want you to know this might be the only chance you guys ever have to make any money. Right. Like there's no guarantee your next track. At this point, White Blood Cells had come out and had been an underground success, but it hadn't, you know, they weren't on MTV yet. They weren't, you know, doing massive overseas tours. And Jack and Meg said, that's okay. And the lawyer's like, what do you, like, okay, I, I, I accept your answer, but no one has ever said that's okay. Like, I'm okay not making a ton of money. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I just have to ask why. He's like, oh, well, we've been poor before. We know how to be poor. And Amen. To a certain extent, <laughs> that's, you know, that's a, without that fear, that's the greatest way that you can go into doing anything. Amen. Because if you were scared, like, hey, we might not sell any records, then you were like, well, yeah, take the huge advance and then be in debt to the label the rest of your life. So, wow, that's amazing. That's that's amazing hearing that story. You know, like thinking back, just a quick, uh, quick. My my first internship ever was at V Two Records in in New York, um, and I uh, in that those days that was two thousand two I was there. Um, I, I didn't know how indie labels worked. I was like, I'm gonna. I'm going to work here forever. <laughs> and uh, for six months. Yeah. And, and the label closed. And I was just like, well, I don't understand. Like 
this is my this is my favorite label ever. They had the best roster. Um, yeah. That is, uh, thanks for sharing that. It was so interesting. Uh, Did you work with like Matt Pollock and Lisa yeah. Klipstick and all the Sid McCain, all those folks? Yep, Matt yep. Pollock was. Uh, yep, he was heading up promotion at the at the time, and uh, I just loved it. The whole Isabel Campbell, Mark Lanigan. We were putting out the rack and tours, and I'll never forget. You know, sitting in the V two offices and and hearing it for the first time as Andy Gershon played us the record, you know, from start to finish, it was just such an exciting time. And me being a 20 year old, just entering the music industry, I was like, Oh my God, this is like, this is where I want to be. And then it was a, it was a quick wake up call. <laughs> uh, yeah. I was like, Oh shit. I'm not going to be, this is where it's, it's, we're closing. Uh, but yep. 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 So anyways, thank you. That was, that's so Very interesting. Cool. Very cool. So as we get into the 2016 performance from Pearl Jam, uh, you mentioned the the kind of storefront that you threw together for for the for the event for the first event that you guys did. In looking at pictures, never had the pleasure of of being there. In looking at the pictures, it it almost looks like a like a. Like if you have a big candy warehouse or candy store, you have a little small area where like there's just candy everywhere and you can you can buy them and they're stacked nicely on shelves. Or the same thing with a brewery where you walk into the brewery and they've got the hats and the merch and the stuff. And then you walk in another door and there's where all the beer is made. Is that kind of if we could visualize walking into Third Man, is that what the storefront looks like today? You know what? The best example I can give, and it's so, so appropriately on brand, it's it's not even funny, but, you know, I've been working here for 12 years since we started and we started giving tours to the public. I'd give tours sometimes. Um, and I've uh, 100% admit I've become desensitized to what it's like here. Right. People always use the Willy Wonka comparison. I don't, I don't argue it. I, there's, there's, there's a lack of appropriate comparisons here. 100%. And then a couple years ago, I think it was 2018, um, a band, one of the few new bands or, or current bands that I work with at Third Man Sleep, um, we had put out their album, The Sciences, and they were starting their U.S. tour in Seattle. And so I thought, well, the, the album was doing great. It was really, really explosive. Um, their first new release in 20 years or something like that. And so me and Ben said, okay, we got to let's put on our A&R guy hats and we got to do the A&R stuff. We fly out. Let's take the guys to dinner. Let's just go see the show, shake some hands, congratulate them, thank them, all that good stuff. So we're in Seattle. We do that with sleep. Um, we go and just hang out and have some meetings with folks at Sub Pop because we've got business with them. Um, and then it was, well, shit, let's call Pearl Jam. Let's call up 10 Club. And, like, you know, I hear they've got a place. You know, they've got this spot. They've got, you know, yeah, where they run the operation from. Um it's not open to the public, like 100% know that. Um, and since we had done work with them, they, they said, yeah, we're happy to show you around. We go in and it was walking into their offices and their compound that gave me the shock of, oh, shit. <laughs> this is what it's like when people come into third man who are fans. <laughs> now I you see, you know, you see the gear, you see their their merchandise operation with posters and t-shirts and all that stuff, recording setups, you know, everything on the wall. Um, th there's a batting cage and there's a half pipe. Like, it's just like the, it's super, super <laughs> cool. And I'm just sitting there with my jaw on the floor <laughs> and it was like, Oh yeah, this is, this is how people feel to that place that you have to go to as your day job, which 
don't get me wrong, I love this, but sometimes you just you lose perspective. Exactly. And so it was a great reminder for me. So it's 2016. It's June of 2016. Pearl Jam is playing Bonnaroo that month. How do they end up on stage at Third Man Records a few days before that in a show that is now legendary in the its, its <laughs> exclusivity of how it came to be? Um, I think the, the, the short answer is, is Jack and Eddie are, are close, good friends. And it was something that had probably been bandied about here and there over the years about we should do something. Uh, it was, it was, you know, kind of envisioned as a, a way that we could get, um, people in, in the 10 club, uh, which is, you know, the Pearl Jam fan club, uh, that has a subscription uh, at the time had a subscription component to it. Um, they stopped doing the, the vinyl records, right? Correct. After 30 years, they finally said, <laughs> there's only so many Christmas songs you can write. Right. Um, but yeah, so we, so it was an idea of trying to get those two to cross pollinate and just figure out like what the timing would be for, for whatever it was. Um, our, our subscription club is called the vault. It is a quarterly subscription and usually it's, it's, a it's kind of three items. You'll have like an LP, a single, and then some other thing, a bonus item. And so we're like, okay, let's get Pearl Jam in and let's do, let's record them live direct to disc. Um, and then Eddie offered up to do, uh, to do a solo recording for the seven inch. And it all, it, it, you know, you're just trying to, you, you just figure out how the pieces fit together. You have to have the crew come in and uh, this is, the smallest stage that crew has ever had to, to work with. I think they came and looked at, they just looked at the stage and said, no, we can't make it work. <laughs> and you're like, uh, and so then it's like going back and, and figuring out like, Oh, we don't need to bring the full stadium gear. Like Jeff doesn't need 18 SVTN. <laughs> we can play one because the capacity here is 250. Um, so it's just like, you, you know, you figure out what works for everyone. It was still cramped. Like boom was, was on a part of the, the stage that was largely meant to be a stairway, but, uh, um, but it worked. He was fine. Um, so yeah, I think it was just, just Jack and Eddie kind of germinating from there. Um, and those guys are, are they're, they're game. They're up for it. They're cool. I think the big appeal though came from, if I'm interpreting is I described the method that we recorded, which is direct to acetate live to disc. Let's call it. This is a manner where, the band gets on stage and, and the cutter head for a, a, a lathe uh, cutting a lacquer, which is the, the first process, the first step in pressing a vinyl record. You have to cut your material to disc. Um, doing it live that way has ceased to be um, relevant or ceased to be the, uh, a manner that was actually practiced. But in uh, the fifties, but in the fifties, especially, this is how you made music. This is how. By, you, but by, by nineteen fifty six, it was it was irrelevant. Once you can record to tape, you're not doing anything live to disc. Got it. Because you're, it's so prone for error or mess up, and you have to start all over, and you have to throw out the disc. So once you can record to tape, you can redo, you can rewind, you can stop, you can pause. You can't pause when you're recording in the middle of the disc. Now that's that's a big thing. So when you're recording live, that means no overdubs, no redos, no starting and stopping. Whatever happens on stage happens on the record. The, the crowd, the, the fan at home is going to hear that. That's if you burp into a microphone. That's if you knock down your bass drum. That's if you're tuning up your guitar. 
everything's happening. Um, so my thought was, and I see this with other bands. We've, we've done a recording with you two. We've done uh, Mud Honey Melvin's kind of contemporaries of Pearl Jam. Uh, Billie Eilish, Jack Johnson. We've recorded a lot of people in this method. I believe the reason Pearl Jam did it was because they had done everything else mm. in their however many years of being a band. It was, well, we've never done this. We've never recorded direct to disc. We should record direct to disc. Um, it's like a good challenge. It's a good, right. it's a good box to put a performer, a creator in and see what they do. How was Billy's performance, by the way? Eilish, that is. She was great. Yeah. Phenomenal. Um, it was acoustic, uh, just, just two piece, her and Phineas. And, uh, this was at the end of 2019. We turned it around in a month, which is pretty damn quick for a recording to release. Um, but I just try to, you know, I try to describe it to my parents who don't at the time, maybe didn't really know who Billy Eilish was. Right. And I was just like, imagine Michael Jackson in the middle of the thriller tour. Uh, and he went and played a 250 capacity <laughs> club and he hand painted uh, 200 album covers. That's what this is right now. She's the biggest artist in the world. And then, yeah, she goes and wins, you know, arm full of Grammys. Everyone, then everyone definitely knows about her. So there, but there was a funny, go ahead. Let me, come on, Roach. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> there was a funny moment that I want to make sure I mentioned before I forget at that show, which is there was, there was some Pearl Jam super fans there. Um, the Rob isn't the Rob a guy? Billy's not radio show. Billy's not Rob. Wait, is Rob Rob? Right, hmm. edit, uh, edit that out right. if I'm wrong. If I'm right, leave it in, and you guys, you guys look. <laughs> then we look, look up. Yeah. Um, but anyways, there's a lot of there was a lot of super fans at that show. How'd they get in was, before you tell the story? Because that was one of my yeah, questions. So, yeah. So there was. Um, we opened up to a small number of ticket sales. So we, we had a guest list, Pearl Jam had a guest list, and then we had a small number of, uh, available to the public. And what we did was we had said there was, a the, the local independent record store down the street from us called Grimey's great record store, one of the best record stores in the country, really. And they were doing a sale. Um, they were going to like open up at, you know, 9am on Wednesday, I believe. And they were going to sell the Pearl Jam concert poster for Bonnaroo there. So, you know, everyone loves the screen printed concert posters. They were going to do that. And they said 10 club members will have access to a special added bonus. We said something like that. And so basically um, no, giving no connection to third man records, no connection to a live show, just saying there's a bonus for 10 club members. A couple smart people figured it out. So there's a couple of people who are waiting in line to buy the poster and figured out like, wait a minute. Yeah. And I was told the story of people who signed up for the 10 club in line. Wow. And then when they bought their poster, they were supposed to, they had to present their 10 club member number and then they got given a wristband. And then that wristband, we made announcement like Friday morning. Cause I think that, no, the show was Thursday. So we made an announcement Thursday I believe that said, Hey, Pearl Jam's playing at third man. This is the time people who already have the wristbands, they get in. And it was, it was a, in terms of our overall capacity, it wasn't a large number to the public, maybe like 50 people. So maybe yeah. like, you know, 20, 25%. Because by um, the way, by the way, Ben, I'd be the guy who would go, 
I'm not going to go because I don't need another 10 club koozie as my bonus gift. I, I, I'm that I'm that guy, Ben. Just so you know, you would have missed out. Um, but so I was talking to I think I was talking to Rob, and I, th- I talked to a couple of people. So so a couple of the conversations blurred together. But someone. I believe it was the person I was talking to was Rob. And it was like, this is my 100th Pearl Jam show. I'm like, holy shit. That's a lot of shows. Pretty pretty cool 100th Pearl Jam show. And I said, what's the last time Pearl Jam played a 250 cap size place? And they were looking at me like, it was probably like August 91. I was like, oh, so when they could only play a Exactly. Exactly. They've done smaller shows, but they've never done this small before. So I know they've done like 800, like mm-hmm. theater kind of shit. Um, that put a huge smile on my face. Like, wow, this <laughs> yeah. is really special. How difficult was it getting them into the into the venue? Um, I guess without knowing, without seeing, just getting them get, the logistics of getting them inside to play the show. I, th- I don't think it was that problematic. Um, we've got a couple different. Uh, we got a couple different methods over the years that we've developed to to spirit people in and out. Got so that, that wasn't too problematic. Um, what was problematic was how many guest list requests I got that night. Um, when it got out. There, there was a lot. Yeah, there was a lot of people. And people that, like, you care about and you want to hook people up, but just, like, you know, the people that ask that g- genuinely should get in is probably like 1% of the requests you get. And then other people are just like, oh, you can have my email address and there's no other way you can try. And then hearing from other people who are like, oh, yeah, I didn't even want to bother you. Or like, you should have bothered me. But that's why, that's why they're on your, your list because they don't, they, they're the ones who think about it, whereas the pushy person is the one who's going to reach out. You want to hook up the person that doesn't ask for some weird reason. It's I'm sure Freud or Maslow figured it out. But how many um, how many slots did you leave for 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 that kind of leeway once? Because it's it's a hard cap at two fifty. I would imagine. It's you know we say two fifty capacity, but you could probably get two two seventy five. Or we've had over three hundred in there before we actually knew what fire code was. <laughs> um, you can two fifty is comfortable. Three hundred will work. Um, so I don't, I don't remember exactly the shows start, you know, they start blurring together once, you know, yeah, you know, in regards to guest lists, but, um, I do remember, I don't know if it's on the record or not. Um, I've got the, the unedited audio. So we run a digital backup just in case something explodes and on the digital backup, I introduced the band. Yes. And awesome. how'd you end up in that slot? Usually it's kind of just whoever makes most sense doing it between me and Swank mm-hmm. or if the band has someone they want to do. Because um, you got to explain the process too. You got to explain how you're recording direct disc because it's not just like a regular show. In in short, the band records um, a test song. They want to make sure all the levels are right. They want to make sure everything's working. Um, but that song is not on the record. It's basically just a run through. Do you remember what um, it was? It was Corduroy. It was... Uh, yeah, I believe the test song was Corduroy. You can uh, double check me on that. Um, and then when everyone gives a thumbs up, the band on stage, the engineer is running the lathe, the engineer is mixing front of house. Then the lights go on, the the uh, recording light above the band goes on, and then we're, we're rolling. You get 20 minutes for that side. But anyways, my introduction was, uh, the only part I remember was, so you were all those people who were emailing me. <laughs> 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 
I, I sneak jokes in when I can. You know? So 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 take take the the third man records hat off and put on the Pearl Jam fan hat. What's your feeling that day, that night, knowing that you are going to be seeing a band that you hold dear in a setting unlike anything else anybody has seen before? Well, you know, I'll, I'll, the, my first thought was uh, I had access to the set list before they, they played, you know. So they've got that printed out and they've got it all around the house so everyone who needs to know knows. And my first thought was, what the fuck is this set list? It's, it's an interesting <laughs> well, set, it's an interesting set honest, list. It, I mean, would you, you're looking at it or you know what it is. It's, it's, it's not what you would expect. Nope. Is that fair to say? Yep. Yeah. And – it took me a while, maybe maybe even years after we put it out to, to, to really wrap my head around it. And what what I came to my conclusion was this is a band that plays countless shows, that records all of those shows, and for the most part puts out all of those shows. A live Pearl Jam recording is not a rare quantity. Um, and they're playing to they're playing stadiums. They're playing festivals to tens of thousands of people. They are playing to a crowd. That is the, the first and foremost thing that they need to do in those situations. Um, this setting, throw out all those rules, right. throw out all those requirements. Um, I feel like the set they played was the set that they wanted to play. Like, hey, man, we got 40 minutes. If you guys only do 40 minutes, what are you going to do? Well, we're not going to do any of the hits. Right. You're not going to do any anything that was a radio smash is not going to be there. That's why I remember Corduroy was the opener because that was the best-known song they played all of Um, And in that regard, that made me dig it that much more because I'm witnessing artists given constraints and – Man, for, Pearl Jam could go out in 40 minutes and play nothing but number one hits. Right. You know, they them more so than just about any other band, uh, you know, current band from my my life. And so I was like, man, that's pretty cool. Like, And so it made me look at and think of those songs uh, differently in regards to, man, what what's the appeal of this? Or what's, what's where's this, what's... What's the inspiration behind yeah. all of this? And I don't. I don't know if I have the answers to any of that, but I. I think. I think it's cool. I have one more question about the show, but I've. Uh, I've. I've geeked out too much. So, Billy, if you have questions about the show, this is the time to do it because I'm going to take a breath, which I rarely do. <laughs> I don't have a question. More of just uh, something that I, I feel like I have to uh, say and be honest about. Um, I was there but not there. I was one of the people outside of third man. Didn't know Ben. I bet you, Ben, if you were to be able to go back and search your emails from that time, you'd find one that said, Oh, Billy Jean Sarula. <laughs> Who is this? <laughs> Here, dear Ben, <laughs> this is Billy Jean. <laughs> Anyways, long story short, I, I was there. I was there, uh, for work because I, I was there for Bonnaroo and, uh, and I was in the area. I was at a work dinner, right? And uh, I got a call from a friend and like, Billy, 
you'll never believe it. You're not looking at your, you know, your social media and your social media and your emails. Billy, Pearl Jam's that third man. I lost it. I was literally in, in the middle of a work dinner uh, there for business um, with other bands. And I was like, I got to go. <laughs> Bye, everyone. And I literally got up out of dinner, got a cab. Went to third man. I was like, I'm just gonna try, you know, you know, you never know. And I, I, I hung out, hung out for a little bit. Um, <laughs> so long story short, I didn't get in. I didn't get in. That's okay though. It was, it was fun. And I, um, a, a quick story. I, I met, you know, a, a little crew outside who I still talk to this day of, um, of some, some super fans such as myself. And, uh, we had a good time just uh just just being around the the celebration of what was going on and uh i do have the poster i have i have the poster from the show i have it yeah, i'm looking sold, at it we sold the poster even if for people even if they weren't at yes. the show like exactly how many so i was like oh i'm getting one i was like i don't care i didn't get to see it i got i got to remember this moment and i do and it was billy it was how many how many people were out front okay um Probably 70, 75, probably a hundred, probably a hundred. Yeah. hundred for sure. Yeah. We, we were trying, we were trying to do all we could to avoid sure. a crowd from building. But, um, yeah, I'm trying to remember who, like, I, I, I would love to go back and look <laughs> through my email, like who all actually <laughs> reached out to me. Cause some of them were like, Oh, you should know better. And other people. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just one of those, like once every couple of years, um, you're that random acquaintance that can make someone's dream come true. <laughs> to me, one totally. of the to me one of the awesome awesome things, and I, I see it happen most often with music. So I always equate it with music. Is that that energy that Billy Jean was just talking about, where you're not even in the show, but you are feeling the the rhythms and the pulsating heartbeat of being in the orbit of a show or in the orbit of artistry being created and. In a lot of ways, look, we'd all rather be on one side of the wall than the other side of the wall. But in a lot of ways, it's almost enough to have been a part of that orbit, even if you weren't inside and didn't get into the show. Yeah, 100%. So my, my last thing before we get into your, your Pearl Jam experience is the, uh, the, the collab, the, the, the jam session that had ended up happening between the band and Jack White uh, on the track of the earth. Can you tell us anything about how that came to be? Did they talk about it? Did they rehearse that? Uh, was it was the solos are supposed to be as long as they ended up being? How that song get picked? <laughs> what was the story behind that 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 moment of that show? So um, this is a weird thing that kind of comes up when we get bands here is that um, I don't know if I can't speak to everyone's inspiration behind the action, but. Um, people ask Jack to do a song all the time. Right. And I don't know if people think they're supposed to, if it's like a kiss the ring thing, but it's, it's not, it's not in the contract. It's not expected. It's kind of like frowned upon. Jack wants people to just play a show. Um, but in this instance, Jack was like, I, I got to play with these guys. <laughs> <laughs> they have, Pearl Jam asked and, and, and he said, I, it would be, it would be rude if I didn't. Um, these guys were doing something very, very cool, something they do not have to do. And so they were trying to figure out, it was like a little bit of a conversation of like, well, what song should we do? And, um, 
it was kind of like back and forth, and I was trying to like hip Jack to some some maybe deeper cuts that he might not be aware <laughs> of, and uh, it ended up being suggested by Pearl Jam. Like we we have this song that we haven't put out um, called "Of the Earth," and that's the one we want to do. And Jack was like, "I don't I don't know why they wanted to do it. I don't know why over anything else, but." Hey man, it's your guys' show. You are hooking this up hardcore, so we'll do it. Um, so yes, they did. They did sound check. They did. Um, they did rehearse it. I do feel like, and this is just gut memory. I do feel like it went on longer during the recording than it did at sound check. Um, and if you pull it up, if you listen to it, I think you can hear there. Whether it's during the solos or after the song is over, you hear some some hoots and you hear some screaming, maybe like a goddamn or something like that. Um, that's Keith Urban yelling. <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> he was, he was in our kind of like little VIP section and he would, he was just, he's a guitar guy. First and foremost, right. he loves guitar playing and he was just <laughs> loving it, just losing his mind. And so, uh, I kind of made reference to that in the, the run out grooves of the record, uh, on that side. So I think it says, uh, something like KU shouting out loud or something like that. <laughs> or KU loves the solo. Um, which was, I, I, let me do a side note. So I had this moment where I could, um, it was after the show. Um, I forget where exactly the conversation took place, but, um, I got to, I was talking with Eddie and we had met a couple times previously, at least once, maybe twice. And I was speaking to him about, I said, you know, there's something that you said and you did uh, a long time ago that really, really had this great effect on me. And I said it was the first self-pollution radio as it was after I fell asleep. But um, but I think not so long that my tape right. ran. So it's like I, I assume this is a large an experience that a lot of people living on the East Coast had, which was yep. they fell asleep listening to it. But the, the tape recorded an extra 60 minutes or so. So that extra 60 minutes is just like, it's a Pandora's box. Who knows what the hell is going to come out of that? Yep. It's the first place I ever heard of Loose Groove Records. Um, <laughs> but Eddie has this part where he starts talking about this secret way of communication that's existed for, for decades. And it's a, it's a way to, um, to get a message across or to, to sell, tell someone a secret. Um, and he's talking about the run out grooves of records. And I believe it's for uh, Mike Watts, Ball Hog, or Tugboat. It might be – I forget the actual record that it ended up on. But the run-out groove etching says you can't change the strap on D. Boone's hat. And it's a story that Eddie was telling us that Mike Watt gave him a hat of, that belonged to D. Boone. And it's a – this is really – I don't know. It's a big deal. It's something really, really – Nice, really well, borderline spiritual, you could say. And Eddie's about to put the hat on. He's like, well, this isn't going to fit. He's going to like adjust the, the snapback or whatever. And he was like, well, shit, you can't change the strap on. You can't change the strap on D Boone's hat. Like you just got to wear it <laughs> yeah, how it is. You got to wear it. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, that was, that's really, really meaningful and really, really beautiful because that's my job at third man is coming up with the run out groove etchings. That's one thing that has fallen to me. And I I'm always reaching for something that is as poignant and as 
borderline magical as that one phrase. And I just want to say, I want to say thank you to you. And he, it was almost like he couldn't ever remember even said it. <laughs> like, it was like, I don't remember that. It's like, well, I said that to me is even more beautiful because, I, you know, being in a position where you can say something that has an effect on someone right. and, and not even remember that is, is all the more that it's, it's the inspiration to always be at your best and to always be doing something uh, that could equate to, to something deeper. It's amazing. Uh, it's an amazing story and amazing memories. And uh, I want to go even deeper into your love of Pearl Jam, which you just started to tap into. Uh, I do have a confession to make. So I, I obviously I have the performance on vinyl. I don't have a record player. What? Ben's about to hang. I, see, I'm glad I got those stories first because he's about to just click out on this call. So I – and it's You're not – my favorite kind of vinyl record consumer, one who can't complain about the quality. <laughs> so it's – um. It's not available. It's not available. Like you, it's not easily findable online. Not the vinyl. The actual. Like you just can't go to YouTube and bring up the performance. It's it's not it's not there. The of the earth performance is there, but the full show is not there. So I have to say, I have never heard the show in its entirety yet because I do I do not have the means to play the 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 product that it is on. Yeah, that's you know, there's something weird that's weird that of the earth is the easiest thing to find because. They did a thing on Pearl Jam Radio like before the release, but while we were still selling subscriptions to the vault, um, where we had to be somewhat vague about that song because it was a new song that they didn't want people to think that it was something that it wasn't or because mm-hmm. um, they'd only played it live. They'd never recorded it before. It hadn't been right. in the studio recording anything like that. And so um, – so that, but that did get played, I believe, on Pearl Jam Radio um, before the release, and that was like the, I mean, that's, I think, undoubtedly the the holy shit moment of of that show. A hundred percent. Roach, obviously, you wouldn't know, but uh, <laughs> get this guy a record player, jeez. Seriously, it's over like twenty bucks at Urban Outfitters. <laughs> All right, uh, Billy, you're going to get the original files. Don't worry, Roach. You're going to get the reins. Uh, we need to talk about Ben's Pearl Jam experience, and we will do that next. Just a heads up, if you are enjoying the conversation on Jamly Matters and you are a craft beer lover, well, then you will love my craft beer podcast. It's a podcast about the lifestyle of craft beer. Yes, we do tastings, but more importantly, we talk about all of the things that have to do with making the craft beer culture what it is. If you like a conversation about the lifestyle of Pearl Jam and you are a craft beer lover, you'll love a conversation about the lifestyle of craft beer. Head Retention is a podcast available through the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Let's get back to Jamly Matters. Welcome back. We are speaking with Ben Blackwell. He is one of the owners of Third Man Records. Uh, it, it, it's, you, you mentioned tours. If I just showed up in Nashville as a, as a visitor... This is non-COVID times. I can get a tour. I know on the website now it's you guys aren't doing them because of COVID. But in normal times, I'm not talking about I'm not talking about Roach showing up, knocking on the door, looking for Ben, saying, "Show me around." I'm saying, Joe, average person. I'm in Nashville. One of the places I want to go to is Third Man Records. In normal times, yes, we are open for for public tours. Um, it's one of the cooler things that we actually do here. Um, 
I kind of liken it to, you know, you can go and visit Sun Studio in mm-hmm. Memphis or you can visit Graceland or you can go to RCA Studio B here. Um, any number of cool historic places, but those are like, they're like ossified in, in yeah. amber. Like they're it's, not, it's they're like not living, they're not living places. Absolutely. This is a living, breathing operational record label that puts out new stuff almost every week. And, and I, I like that appeal. You know, we, we, we do student tours. We get students in here. We do recordings with them. And, you know, you mentioned Elvis or you mentioned, um, Say Elvis. You mentioned Elvis. He might as well be a cartoon character, like, and that's not meant as a way to diminish his accomplishments or who he was. But you know, he's been dead for almost fifty years now, and he only exists in a characterization. And when I bring in kids here, I can say, "Has anyone heard of Jack White?" And it's—I'll be honest—it's not always a ton of kids. It might be a handful. There's usually at least one. But then I'll say, okay, has anyone heard of Beyonce? Everyone's arm goes up. Okay, Jack was on Beyonce's Lemonade record. He did the song Don't Hurt Yourself. Like, no way! <laughs> like, yeah, this is his place. Oh, okay. And immediately it's a connection with something that's that's relatively current, but also relevant to these kids. Right. Um, but yes, in, in normal times, we, we have tours on Fridays and Saturdays. Um, we, we've not started it back up yet, but I'm, I'm eager to, because it's just, it, it brings a great electricity to the day and to the, to everything we do. Right. That's, that's for anybody too, as well, Billy, but Roach, you could come in tomorrow and I'd give you a tour. No problem. So that's the, that's the Roach guarantee. If Pearl Jam's playing, can I still do that and hit you up? Now you can. Now you can. (laughs) All right, Billy, what's the first question you have for Ben, uh, to get really get into his Pearl Jam, uh, fandom and experiences? I think our first question was, what is your Pearl Jam backstory? Like, how did you find this band? So it all seems to kind of, it kind of seems like before and after. Um, But what the moment is, is kind of hard to describe. I would say it's roundabout, it's probably late 1991, where all of a sudden people are talking about Nirvana Nevermind. Pearl Jam. Uh, I don't know if Smashing Pumpkins is in there just yet. No, but um, Soundgarden but is. Soundgarden is, but I don't know how much that's really filtering through Detroit uh, modern rock radio. I guess at the time it wasn't even modern rock. Right. Uh, that didn't exist as a format. Um, these were stations that, like, you know, were, were probably playing MC Hammer the year before, to be perfectly honest. Um, so it almost feels like it, it sprung up overnight that there were these bands that had done really, really amazing music. You know, it was, you know, I, I had an appreciation prior for, uh, you know, red hot chili peppers and, and guns and roses kind of things in that rock and roll realm. But also you're nine years old. You're not, I'm not buying music on my own. I'm not going to the record store on my own. You're kind of largely relegated to whatever the radio plays or MTV shows. And luckily, the radio and MTV both decided that Pearl Jam and Nirvana were cool. And so I would say they, Nirvana and Pearl Jam coexist in my head as being important and loving them pretty much through the moment that Kurt Cobain kills himself. Wow. And at that point it seemed like Nirvana became more important because of that. 
when you're 12 years old. That there seemed to be like a, a, a layer there that, that didn't previously exist and, and did not exist in Pearl Jam. And this is totally psychosomatic in my head, by the way. Like this wasn't, this wasn't a, a conference was held at the lunch table amongst me and my peers. Um, so I, I, I became more Nirvana dedicated at that point. I didn't stop liking Pearl Jam. I just was, was more focused and more intrigued by Nirvana. Um, and I, I'm bummed about that. <laughs> like looking right. back, whatever kids, teenagers do, do dumb things but because it, they think something it wasn't cool even, I don't even think it was kids, Ben. I think like, you know, look, when somebody passes tragically, the obvious thing to do is then to start putting them up on a pedestal higher and yeah. higher and higher and higher. And the fact of the, the, that Pearl Jam is still making music, that Ed is still alive, kind of it, 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 they don't get put up on that pedestal that goes higher and higher and higher. And so I don't think that was even like a kid thing. I think a lot of adults were doing that at the time too. Well, it's like, you know, there's a famous line, I think it was from Sonic Youth. And Sonic Youth said the, the worst decision we ever made was never breaking up because mm. we could never come mm. back from breaking up. We stayed together for however long, 25 years. Um, when you consistently do output that long, it's so much easier to overlook or just consider that old reliable. They'll always be there. Correct. Yada, yada, yada. Um, so, but even so, um, you know, uh, those first three albums are just unfuckwithable. I love those records so great. I remember at one point there was, there was some sort of special on, uh, on MTV news, some, some report they did. And I feel like it was about, I hope someone can correct me or find the clip because I, I, I want this just for my own music business side of, I think it was when Michael Jackson's history came out and they're talking to someone working at a record store owner or person working the counter. I don't know. And they say, so what's, what's this mean? Michael Jackson history, greatest hits, whatever, you know, they said, well, you know, it's not as big as like a new Pearl jam record. (laughs) (laughs) What? Really? 90, but 96 was Pearl Jam right. bigger than a, a, a Michael wow. Jackson. Wow. Uh, maybe it was, I don't know, but I want to, I want to go back and dig into that. Wow. Um, That's awesome. So, um, so yeah, so the first three records and then after that, I've kind of veered uh, largely away from, from, from most mainstream music and I've become ensconced in the Detroit rock and roll underground and so I'm playing shows at that point. I'm, you know, uh, largely dealing with vinyl 45s by local bands. No one was even putting out albums yet at that point. And, and again, in my mind, that is the complete antithesis of a big, huge stadium-sized major label band. Right. Um, I talk about this a little bit in the essay I put in that, the, the photo book that comes with the Pearl Jam vault package. Uh, that with years and experience that there's so little difference between what we were actually doing and what Pearl Jam was doing. I mean, I, I, I line it up as vinyl based subscription club, uh, silkscreen concert posters, recording all of your performances, um, doing your own ticket sales. Mm. This is, all stuff we do here at third man and all stuff that is 
is while should just be considered common sense, largely, if I'm being honest, really actually just points back to Pearl Jam. Like it's, it's common sense because of them. It's not common sense um, that necessarily even predates them. Um, so as, as a, as a older, as a more mature person, I, I'm, I have realized that and I've, I've come to, uh, be, be more wise about it, I guess. You know, I'm glad you, I'm glad you gave me the second part of that because I'm thinking to myself as this guy is being coming ensconced in the Detroit music scene and he's, he's worried about, or he's thinking about and listening to Detroit rock bands, um, it's it's one of those situations where you can kind of put on airs and go, look, I'm doing this. I'm on the I got my boots on the ground and I'm working hard. I don't have time to listen to those guys, those corporate shill, whatever, blah, 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 whatever words you want to throw for sellout on things. And you brought it totally back around by going, oh, wait a second. They're, they're kind of doing the same shit that, that I'm doing. Yeah. And they're laying groundwork for us to do it. It's funny. I was looking at, I was going through, so we're putting together this, uh, our current vault package is the 20th anniversary of the White Stripes year 2001, which is, you know, considered their breakout year. White Blood Cells came out that year. Looking through like the archives that we have. And I find an email from the, was sent to Jack from the distributor. At that time, the distributor of their records was Mordam. And the distributor at Mordam had gotten an email from the record store, uh, one of their accounts in Missoula. And they said, hey, just want to let you know, uh, Jeff Amen came in and he bought Hot Water Music and he bought the White Stripes Dish Dill. So this is before White Blood Cells even came out. So wow. this is probably like February of 2001. So I was like, that's pretty early for a guy who at that point is a multimillionaire, huge, you know, Does it give him yeah. all the platitudes you want. Like he was fucking in tune to it. I didn't know that email came back then. Secondly, uh, on tour uh, that summer, the White Stripes play the Crocodile Club in Seattle. I've got the board tape here somewhere. Um, whatever. It's, it's July. That's all we need to know. Eddie Vedder's there. Not on the guest list. Showed up. Bought a ticket. Um, he was on top of it. This was before they played late night television. This is maybe two weeks after the album came out. Crocodile Club ain't that big. Nope. It's maybe 400 capacity. Um, and he was super, he was super sweet then. He was telling Meg how he was just learning how to play ukulele. He was teaching himself how to play ukulele. Um, I, I got to meet him. So the funny thing about the Crocodile Club is that, um, strictest enforcement of a 21 and over clause that I have ever experienced. I was 19 at the time, had my brother's ID. Thought I was going to get in, no problem. Yeah, the White Stripes. I'd been on tour with White Stripes the year before, and they'd played uh, around the corner from the Croc at a place called the Sit and Spin. No one ID'd me there. I'd heard Seattle had the most draconian liquor uh, restriction age requirements. So, like, man, if you get in in Seattle, you can get in anywhere. So, two thousand got in, no problem. Two thousand one Crocodile, a little bit more of a establishment. And the guy just immediately was like, "This isn't you." Like, clearly, one hundred percent is not. Like, oh, <laughs> so I have to, but I was like, but I'm selling the band's merch. Like, yeah, we don't care. <laughs> so afterwards, so I, I go back to the sit and spin club, which is around the corner from the crocodile and just hang out there. For the show. 
And I fell asleep at the sit and spin and they woke me up like they were about to close. And uh, they knew, they remembered me from the year before. They're like, you were here last year with the White Stripes, weren't you? I'm like, yeah. I was like, you couldn't get into the crock? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, like give me a slice of pizza. But I was able to get in after the show and get in the back room and Eddie was back there. And I was wearing a, a t-shirt of this Detroit rock band called the Gories, Detroit garage band. Um, that I was a big fan of that. You know, one of the guys in the Gories is in the band I play in the dirt bombs. We had heard the rumor that Pearl Jam covering leaving here was based on the Gories version of leaving here. Never mind the fact that the Gories never released a version of leaving here and that even amongst the most diehard of 12 underground <laughs> Gories collectors, no one even had a version of leaving here. We had, ju- we had just heard that in our circle. So my first question to Eddie Better is, so did you guys do, uh, you know, leave in here because of the Gories? He's like, no, I've never, never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> the version. I'm like, oh, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That's your first question. I love that. <laughs> you just got to go in because you don't know when the conversation is no. going to stop. And then I blew it. I acted like a total <laughs> and I'm almost embarrassed to even mention that, what I said after that. <laughs> I'll say it. So... Um, my band, the Dirt Bombs, was coming through in one month's time. So we were going to be at the Crocodile one month after the White Stripes. And so I told Eddie, I said, oh, we're going to be here in August. You should come see us. He's like, oh, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm going to be, I'm playing some Ralph Nader rallies. I'm going to be playing some Ralph Nader rallies at that time. So I'm, I'm flying out. He's like, I'm flying out to New York, and I'm going to fly out to blah, 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 the different places that he's playing these rallies. And I said, oh, that's pretty cosmopolitan. <laughs> Fucking dumb, dumb 19 year old. (laughs) And I don't know if he was offended or didn't understand what I meant by (laughs) cosmopolitan, but he did say, he did say it almost turned into a Joe Pesci good fellow saying, like, what do you mean? What do you, what do you you say? I don't know what you mean. This is the Green Party candidate. This is so far from cosmopolitan. Okay. <laughs> oh my god. I I I'm I have very few conversational cringe moments that I think back on. But that is absolutely top three in my life. 100. I, I love that you were so music snobby and you were asking Eddie Vedder to show, to, to prove his cred to you. You were trying to gather some cred points. Like he's got to show something to you. It's dumb. I got a picture. I got a picture of us. That was, um, you know, before everyone had camera phones, I was definitely on tour. I always had the portable camera. So we got a picture. He's not, not smiling. He's not necessarily smiling. <laughs> I don't know why he would be after the the, the grilling you uh, gave him. <laughs> Billy, what's, but, um, it, what's your what's your next question? What do we got? Uh, that might be a, the live question, but it maybe it isn't. Oh man, this is too good. Um, I'll uh, I'll give I'll go one more. Is there any notable songs that you want to talk about? Any notable Pearl Jam songs that you feel as a fan have really mean something to you and want to share with us? Um, I'm trying to think of what sticks out in my mind. Uh, the ones that I really like of the, at, at the moment are I, I really like um, Given to Fly. I got a newfound appreciation for Given to Fly with having 
uh, Sirius radio and being able to listen to Pearl Jam radio and hear different live versions of that. Um, just like a dumb, I don't know if this is a music nerd or a bass player thing. I'm not a bass player, but just realizing there's, there's a spot in the song. I don't even, is it the chorus or the verse or whatever, but there's a spot where Jeff is playing the same note on the bass for a really, really long run. What seems like a long run. to me given like he's a very skilled bass player and he could play whatever all up and down the neck the fact that he knows in that part the service to the song is to to lay on that one note um uh the lyric he still gives his love he just gives it away i don't know what it means it sounds very profound that uh maybe now that i have daughters that has something to do with it um and then the other one would be the other song at the moment would be rearview mirror mm which is still probably going back. Um, the, I don't know what the next question is about watching them live or not. If I'm jumping. No, go ahead, please. Tie, forward, tie but, it right in. Um, so when the first time I saw them live was, this would have been 98. What year did no code come out? Well, no code. No code's 96. Yield is 98. 98. Okay. When did the, uh, the do the evolution is a Todd McFarlane illustrated video. Is that right. correct? Yes. And that's also when, 98. That's, that's 98. That's off yield as well as is given to fly. So your I think your time frame is yeah. right. Yeah. Okay. So it's 98. So, um, I saw them right around, it's like right before school got back. So it's like late August, they played at the palace of Auburn Hills, that tour. And my ticket was a birthday present from my dad who his brother at the time, his brother at the time, his brother, <laughs> um, a big Pearl Jam fan, and one of his best friends, also Pearl Jam. So guys my dad's age would go and see Pearl Jam. Um, I don't know if they had an extra ticket or he asked them, or I don't really know how it all came together. But it was at the point where I kind of felt like I was a, it was, I was a little bit over Pearl Jam, a little bit. But also realizing that, it's so seldom that your parents 100% nail something as a gift when you're a teenager it was like, you know what? This was, this was close enough. I like rock and roll. I have an appreciation for Pearl jam. I like live concerts. This you're, you yeah. know, the Venn diagram of all these things, it still works. Um, so I went to go see them and the performance of Rearview mirror, which is, you know, a record at that point is, is, what five years old? It, yeah, years right. Years old. And I've listened to that a ton and ton, and just for whatever reason, never locked in to Rearview Mirror. And Eddie did the thing, this thing when he started. Um, also, a little bit snobby of me. I, I'll go back. I had a thing about lead singers who didn't play guitar. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was. I thought it wasn't cool for whatever reason. <laughs> and so that what I had seen of Pearl Jam up to that point, Eddie was never playing he, guitar. Exactly. So, but when they're playing Rearview Mirror live in 1998, he is playing guitar. And that all of a sudden, like, oh, he can play guitar. <laughs> I maybe shouldn't be so snobby here. <laughs> I, and he does this weird thing. And I don't know if this is, if he did this on multiple live uh, performances of it or whatever, but he kind of starts up slow. Slow, yeah. It's a slow, it's, 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 
he starts doing this. I don't know if it's a nod to little Honda where he's saying like first mm. gear, second gear, like he's speeding up to try to get to that pace. Right. Uh, that, that kind of frenetic pace of rear view mirror. I'm actually getting goosebumps talking about it right now. Um, I've never even gone back and listened to that version, but that connected with me. And not that long later, me and my buddy who uh, we'd make music together, we'd play in the basement. I play drums, he'd play guitar. We kind of exhausted everything we could do of Nirvana songs. Those are really easy to do as a two piece. And we'd get some other guys to come in and play with us or whatever. And, and towards the end of us, like stopping playing together because you know, I discovered underground Detroit music and he discovered pop and we, you know, went our separate ways. <laughs> um, we got another guy who came in and that guy knew how to play rear view mirror on guitar. <laughs> and that was like the best thing that ever sounded in my basement it was three pieces, like two guitar players and one drummer playing rear view mirror. The lyrics fit in great. You know, you can sing that. Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, that holds a, uh, that holds a very nice, nice spot in my heart. That's a that's that's great. You knocked two questions out there: the live experience and then the songs, which is fantastic. So, Billy, there's just one last question before we wrap up with Ben. Yeah, one last question: What does Pearl Jam mean to you? Uh, it would have been nice to study for this one. <laughs> <laughs> we prepared something. Um, I mean, at this point, it seems. It seems almost institutional and it seems like in my experience, it's the kind of thing that maybe you don't know that I, I could, it, it's the kind of thing that a lot of people have a history with, at least in my, my world, our world of, of rock and roll labels or whatever, that might not be the most forward facing thing. Um, but when you find that connection, you find someone that is that that has listened to the live recordings or has gone to the shows or or can talk about uh, the Mama San trilogy or whatever. Um, it's a gr it's a great feeling when you feel that connection. I mean, it's Billie Jean. It's like what you said of the people that you met outside the show that didn't even get to see the show. Um, it's almost like it's a secret language. It's a it's a it's a large secret club. I mean, I, I liken it to I, I'm getting this feeling in in my orbit right now that there's a lot of people. This does not apply to me, by the way, but there's a lot of people now that I see who like used to be into the Grateful Dead who are now like who covered that up for years. And now the Grateful Dead kind of have like a almost anti hipster hipster fan base like it's cool to like the dead something like that. And now all these people are like, Oh yeah, I saw the dead a ton. Right. Blah, blah. And just, like, you know, uh, that's kind of almost how I feel about Pearl jam of like, I liked, and then I, I didn't, I didn't love it so fanatically, but I always still paid attention. Um, I maybe didn't buy the records. Um, it's, uh, so I think it's, but it's, it's, there's also a, a weird underlying, there's a, there's a, a care and a beauty and a thoughtfulness to it. Um, those guys 
more so than anyone that's come in here, had every right at Third Man to be total fucking rock stars. And they're not. They're the opposite. They are, you know, the, the, the nicest folks that have ever come through here are in, in no particular order, Pearl Jam and U2. And it's like, those guys could have, they didn't have to be nice to anyone. They didn't have to talk to anyone. I mean, Eddie Vedder talked to everyone here. He was talking to the lowest intern here at Third Man. He wasn't too important for anyone. He was gracious with his time and with his thoughts. Um, all the guys in the band were. Um, I don't even know how this happened. This is a weird side note. Um, Mike McCready has his own record label called Hockey Talker. And they started pressing records at our plant up in Detroit. And he put me in touch with someone who I then put in touch with someone. And they kind of do all this stuff. And, and I think Mike had some friends that were coming through Nashville. And he said, asked if they could get a tour. And I said, yeah, absolutely no problem. So it's like been like tangentially in touch with Mike McCready. I would, I would never be so assuming to say that we're friends or that we're even close or anything like that. He came and visited and, and, you know, his, he was with his family and I was with my family and they like interacted for a minute, like nothing like we went and got dinner together, went to the movies, whatever. Um, this past year on Christmas morning, a bomb went off in Nashville. Right. Right. Three miles from my house woke us up on Christmas morning. Um, we didn't know at the time it was a bomb. The first person to text me about it, to ask if I was okay was Mike McCready. Oh my God. Wow. And I'm like, first off, I'm like, how do you even have my cell phone number? But secondly, oh my God, it's Christmas and you're checking in here. I'm, I'm emotionally like so fulfilled and, and feeling so like privileged. I don't know what, how else to, to, to describe it. And that, in short, is, is like what I would say to describe all of the guys in that band. Every interaction I had with those folks. Um, so it just goes, it, it makes you that much happier. And it makes me think that, oh, that's how you get to be that level. Right. You don't get to be that level by being an asshole or being a dick or having a shitty crew because no one's going to want to deal with it. Right. People will call bullshit. And that will prohibit you. So it's like, oh, you 2 and Pearl Jam, I don't know, arguably the two biggest current bands in the world. They're the two nicest bands in the world. That they're, they're, That's not a coincidence. There is a connection there, 100%. We were able to give a, uh, a hardened music guy who's seen it all and done it all, we were able to give him some chills during the conversation. Billy, I'm going to consider that a success. I, Rush, how, how did I do? I mean, this was a good guest. Can you not uh, agree? I, I'm uh, I'm proud of myself. I don't think we're <laughs> going to lie. Uh, listen, now Ben's Ben's going to just laugh his ass off here, but I'm going to I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it in all honesty. I don't think we're going to get a bigger a bigger guest no. than, than we just got just now. No, that was good. <laughs> ben, that was real good. Really? Wow. Look, look, yeah. He's like, you got to aim yeah. higher. You got to shoot <laughs> higher. <laughs> <laughs> Did you? Was there not a question for memorabilia or? or oh, well, hang on. Okay, so what do you got? You guys aren't even <laughs> terrible at your own format. Jeez. What can I say? From now on, what's your most treasured Pearl Jam <laughs> memorabilia piece? Let me. Uh, so I'm just. I'll talk through a little bit of this. So I remember my brother got the uh, the T-shirt of 
Nine out of ten kids prefer guns to crayons. Famous back when that was probably their most probably their most famous piece of merchandise or their most well known, I should say. Yeah. So I remember like stealing that from him at some point, and then um, I found a used copy of the um, the double the the Christmas fan club single that was the double seven inch. So it's got like. Sonic Reducer on it and mm-hmm. My Way. Yep. That one. I found that one used, which you wouldn't I mean those all of those fan club singles are hard to find used because yeah. people hold on to them. Right. Yeah. People do not let go of those. That was I was stoked to find that. I got a couple of the other like Spin Black Circle seven inch. Mm-hmm. Um but I did get um I got I got insider access to a bunch of the stuff around uh, PJ20, the vinyl releases. So there's like a seven inch set. It's not even a seven inch set. It's a seven inch that exists on four or five different colors of vinyl that they only, they made like 200 of. Um, and then there's uh, the, the PJ20 triple LP, like film soundtrack, I guess, for lack of a better term. And then there's also these, these bootleg versions of the soundtrack i'm doing air quotes for people that are only listening um that was like rubber stamped so there's like a rubber stamped version of those and that was because i happened to befriend um andy fisher who was running vinyl films which was doing all of the uh was basically cameron crowe's film uh any of cameron crowe's films they were doing like the vinyl partnership compare uh companion piece too um so those ended up uh, with me and uh, those are pretty uh, hard to find and pretty wild things. No, that's uh, um, that, that's some rare high level stuff. That's good. That's good. That, that PJ seven inch PJ 27 inch. That's uh, yeah. I don't think a lot of people have that. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a hard one to find, but all, but at the same time too, like when I finally got to the point where I could go and get, God damn, man, I don't, I don't know if people talk about this or not, but I'm I'm thinking of major Pearl Jam moments in my life, which was the vinyl release of Vitology coming out two, three, what was it? Two weeks before the CD came out? Uh, it was at least, at least two weeks. Yeah. And if you, and, and you know, that, that version or that vinyl is not just your usual, it's in a sleeve. Like there's that was a complicated production. It's really, really beautiful. It's really, really well done. I mean, so much so that I've gone back and I'm like, let me just find a copy of the Vitology book, like the actual book the that book. they ripped off and got sued for and all that shit. Like, I want a copy of that book because I think that would be cool. And you can find them cheap, you know. Um, but like once I uh I didn't get the vinyl at the time, but I remember a friend having it and thinking, like, oh man, that's that's cool. Yeah. That is cool. And and that's a time when no one was really saying vinyl was cool. This is a conversation I have often, which is I started a vinyl record label because I wasn't – it's because I was intrigued by vinyl. It wasn't because someone else was telling me it was cool. It was because I thought vinyl was cool. And it wasn't coming from any huge – um, you know, it wasn't a message told to me by MTV or the radio. It was told to me by the artist's that I liked and, and the music that I wanted to listen to. And so there's a part of that that is 100% due to Nirvana and to Pearl Jam doing vinyl 
in 92, 93 when they, they no, didn't have to. And nobody and no was. One, no one would have even cared if they didn't. Um, and I looked through that from that starting point to where I am now, where there's a six-month lead time for getting vinyl manufactured at the label because everyone thinks it's cool. Well, the reason people think it's cool is let's go all the way back. Let's go back to Nirvana, Pearl Jam. Let's go back to Green River Records on Sub Pop and Task Force and all that stuff. Let's I, I can go back. I did the research. I followed the, the family tree of all this stuff. So, you know is the butterfly effect you know a small right. little thing that happened 20 years ago and now here we are it's amazing it's amazing and the the stories that you shared are are equally amazing and we we really appreciate it and we appreciate you being generous with your time and your stories ben blackwell thank you so much for coming on to the podcast hell yes <laughs> Now, it's your turn. Post your thoughts on the Jamily Matters Facebook page or send an email to jamilymatters at gmail.com.